Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Myriad Oncology. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Oncology for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Uh, very excited to be here today. Before I forget, we are recording these now just to let people uh, access them later. So since I always forget to say that, better to start with it. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, genetic counseling training programs. We have a special guest, uh, Janice Berliner. Is that how you say your last name? Janice? Berliner. Berliner. All right. Well, thank like you're you. in the city of Berlin and that's where you're from. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And Shelly helped uh, make the connection. So appreciate you always uh, helping out Shelly and uh, Shelly's here to man the chat. So if this is your first time here, um, yeah, this is an open forum. I mean, we, we do these uh, thematic based, but if you have any question on your mind, uh, feel free to ask. Today's you know theme is really about genetic counseling training. Um, but, uh, you know, feel free to ask whatever you want and, uh, you can unmute yourself and ask a question. That's usually the best for discussion. Uh, but if you're not comfortable, uh, with that, feel free to, feel free to just, um, uh, send a chat question to Shelly who will field that and, uh, make sure it's answered. Um, and, you know, just for those who haven't been on for a while, um, you know, I know it says live weekly, I guess we're, we're fibbing a little bit, but we're, you know, this has always been kind of a, uh, you know, work in progress. And we started during COVID last year uh, when, when I joined the company and we've been just constantly evolving it. We're moving towards more uh, just having special guests on each one of these, but you know, with that just takes more coordination. Uh, so we we're trying to do richer content, but probably only going to be doing it about two times a month or so. Uh, going forward. But again, who knows what that'll look like in a year. I don't know. So, but uh, in two weeks, we'll uh, be talking about prostate cancer uh, genomics, and we're going to have um, Todd Cohen on uh, that one. Um, and also, uh, you know, Rob, maybe you'll be around for, for that one. I see you on. Thank you. Um, and then in October, uh, yeah, we just posted all these. So we have uh, male breast cancer. We have, uh, we're going to have some patients coming on uh, to that one. And then uh, Shelly, also uh, has some new data on uh, male breast cancer, so that'll be good. And then uh, we're gonna close out October, uh, getting ready for Halloween, uh, with uh, polygenic risk score uh, translation into clinical care. So we've been doing kind of a few on polygenic risk score, uh, but I've been getting feedback that, um, you know, like how, how do you apply it more? We've been doing a lot on the science side um, and people want a little bit more on the applicability. So we're gonna uh, address that. Holly Peterson is going to be on that from uh, the Cleveland Clinic. We'll also have Edie uh, joining from our women's health team. Um, and then if you go down here, you know, just to remind everyone where we post these things, um, we have the podcast. Uh, and if you just click on the podcast link, um, uh, yeah, we just posted a, po a podcast with Todd Cohen. I did this one, I don't know, probably four months ago or so. We just finally put it up. We have, we have some of these in the waiting in the wings. Um, but anything that says Myriad Live is from this webinar, so you can go back and, and listen to them. But we've uh, this was the one with Mark Robson and Paul Barron on pros and cons of germline testing for everybody. 
um, the limited hereditary genes with limited guidelines. This was excellent with Fergus Couch. This was probably one of the more informative ones we've done in a while. Um, yeah, so the tons of content. It's kind of scary actually to look at it. <laughs> so, so it's a lot being produced. Um, all right, so Janice, uh, let's let's get back to, to you. Um, thank you so much for coming on today. And pleasure um, to be here. Yeah, no, it's very exciting. So, do you mind telling everybody, you know, who you are, what you do, how you ended up here? Sure. So, as you said, my name is Janice Berliner. I've been a genetic counselor for a frightening thirty-two years. Um, clinically mostly. So I was a clinical counselor in prenatal and pediatrics for close to 10 years, then in cancer risk assessment for about 20 years, and then made the switch into academia. So, you know, I had always wanted to be a program director, literally my entire career. It just kind of never happened for a variety of reasons, largely geographic. Um, Couldn't really make it happen for a while, but um, now that a couple of things all came together at one time. One, all all my kids were pretty much out of the house. So I thought, oh, this is now time that I could maybe think about moving somewhere for a job like that. And then lo and behold, a job opened up that was completely remote and I didn't have to move. So it it all worked out at the same time. So I work from home. I live in New Jersey and the school where I direct the genetic counseling training program is in Western Massachusetts. So I go up there periodically, but for the most part, hunkered down in New Jersey, which was very convenient during a pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And what, so, and so you're the program director now, did you help shape the program from the beginning or was it something? you? No, no, but yes. So um, I didn't help shape it from the beginning. The first cohort of students was just finishing their first academic year when I started, which was a little over three years ago. So I started in June of 18 and the program first matriculated students in September of 17. So they were just finishing their first year. So I would say I was in on the ground floor or maybe like upper basement, but um, I didn't actually build the foundation. Yeah, yeah. Now we don't have, um, you know, a lot of people on our genetic counselors, but not everyone, um, including myself. Do you want to walk uh, through, you know, your program and, uh, you know, I don't however you want to do it, maybe like a standard genetic counseling program and then any differences in, in the program that you're sure. running? Yeah. So, you know, as we probably all know, the first genetic counseling training program started at Sarah Lawrence College, I believe, in 1969. And, you know, for a long time, there weren't too many of them. In fact, when I applied for programs in the late 80s, there were 10 across the country, as I recall. And the average number of students that each one took was probably, I don't know, three, maybe. Now there are, I believe, 55 programs. And I don't know what the average number of students is, but I would venture to guess it's in the eight to 12 range, maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, The newer programs, I mean, the ones that were developed more recently, tend to start with more students. So I can think of two offhand that started within the last three or four years that started out with a class of 20, which was, you know, shocking to those of us who've been around a long time. But anyway, um, the traditional, you know, on-ground programs are two academic years, usually involving the summer in between for clinical rotations and sometimes coursework. They're not all the same. And within that time, of course, you have your, your classes that are 
you know, on university campuses and the capstone project and all of your clinical rotations, which are typically within a fairly small geographic region surrounding the school. And some schools are, I use the word insular. I don't know if that's really the right word, but, you know, if you have a, a program at, for example, Columbia University or Mount Sinai, you know, they have so much clinically going on that all of their rotations, generally speaking, take place within the institution, mass general schools like that. Um, for programs that are not tied to academic medical centers like Sarah Lawrence and ours and others, their rotation sites need to be outside of the university system itself. But if it's an on-ground program, then they're still, generally speaking, quite local. And you know, you might have people traveling during the summer when there's less coursework. Sometimes people will do remote, I don't mean remote uh, rotations, I mean elsewhere. You know, your program might be in New York and you might do a rotation in Seattle, something like that, mm -hmm. or even go overseas. Our program was designed to be virtual, to be all online. Um, so everything, so the students don't actually go to a physical campus. Then. They Well, they come to our campus three times, two and a half times a year. <laughs> that sounds funny. Um, we have them come to campus for a weekend at the beginning of the fall semester and the beginning of the spring semester each year. So that's four. And then they come for graduation. So five times total. Mm -hmm. Um there's not, this is going to sound funny, but there's not a lot for them to come to school for, right? Um, because even if they wanted to meet with faculty, most of us aren't even there, right? So it's really run virtually, but they come to campus for these weekends so that we can all be together. It's very social and it's very academic as well. So we have guest lecturers that do workshops. We do um, participatory activities like a name that syndrome contest and a medical terminology game and things. We do some icebreaker activities. We teach them about the, um, in their initial, the first time they come, we teach them how to use our learning management system and, and how to use the online library system, all those kinds of things. So it's orientation as well as a whole lot of other things. And, you know, when we do that at the very beginning, it's a good way for students to get to know their classmates and the the cohort above them. And then, you know, we set up the mentorship activities to mentor, mentee, get together so that they have, you know, some, some way of feeling sort of attached. And, you know, given the social media outlets that we have now, most of our students are very connected to each other months before they even start. So like right after the match happens, they start connecting with each other, which I'm sure is true for every program, but it's more important for ours because they're not on campus together very much. Their clinical rotations can be done anywhere in the US. So if a student is from, I don't know, Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, we can set up a clinical rotation in Albuquerque. In fact, we have several of them. So we have sites all across the country and as we have new students from new places, we develop affiliation agreements with new programs. So we yeah, just, we yeah. have to work really carefully with other genetic counseling programs to make sure that we're not, you know, stepping on anybody's toes and stealing rotations and mm -hmm. things like that. But we can usually get students where they want to be, or at least close. Yeah. And, and this sounds, you know, pretty innovative. It was the, the program. I mean, there is a brick and mortar campus. Was it started as a brick and mortar type of program? And then it <laughs> The, into this? Yeah, sort of. So the person who originally started the development of the program 
was brought in by the university. So I think the university had the idea, let's make a hybrid program. And that's what the, the first person developing it, who was a genetic counselor and was a consultant hired to do this, had built it out to be. So, you know, there'll be, let's say, you know, largely asynchronous classes, but, you know, come to campus on weekends for whatever. Um, I never really looked that closely at it because we never really did it. <laughs> so from the time that idea came about until the time the program actually matriculated its first students, things changed and it became all online. And I wasn't part of that. So tell the truth, I don't really know mm -hmm. why it was changed. That? Well, first cohort started in September of 17. Okay. And I think that BayPath got um, new program accreditation through ACGC in 2015 or maybe early 16 before my time. So I don't know the dates exactly, uh, but we did just achieve our full accreditation. So after three years, you have to apply for, you know, you're, you're no longer a new program. So we now have full accreditation. Yeah. And um, are there other programs like this in the country right now that are really there's, all virtual? Yeah, there's one. It's at Boise State University. They started two years after we did. I believe they matriculated their first class in September of 19. And their program is m very similar to ours. This, the two differences that I know of are, one, they don't have their students come to campus for those weekends. And two, they have a, a set number don't really mean that the number can't change. I mean, a, a set of clinical rotation sites within a five state radius, you know, Idaho and, and several around them, Washington state, I think, and um, Montana. Anyway, so their students can go to all sorts of different places for their clinical sites, but it needs to be one that they've already established. So, you know, if you're from Florida and you apply to Boise State, you have to know that when you do your clinical rotations, you're going to be going out to the Pacific Northwest. Whereas with our program, if you're from, I don't even remember what I just said, if you're from San Diego or somewhere, you know, you can do your rotations there, you know, assuming mm -hmm. we can find something for you and we usually can, then you can be wherever you want to be. Yeah, that's nice. So the, how's the feedback been from the students and external people yeah. about the program? Uh, well, it, you know, depends in what regard, but um, I think what people like the most about it, what I like the most about it is that it allows us to have such a diverse student body because people who used to not be able to go to a graduate program because, you know, if you live in an area where there isn't one and you're geographically locked for whatever reason, you know, marriage, young children, elderly parents to take care of, a job you can't leave, whatever, um, then you were just precluded from going to become a genetic counselor. And now you don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. So the average age of our students is a little bit higher. You know, our average student is 28 or 29. Many have children. Many have had jobs for a long time. Some Are you they know, still working their jobs? They are, although we, we tell them in strong language for their second year, we recommend they go part-time. Mm -hmm. Because between full-time clinical rotations and capstone project and coursework, it's really a lot. We've had students do it. I don't recommend it, but working part-time, absolutely. You know, whether it's just to keep your hands in your profession or to keep your medical benefits or the salary or whatever it is, you know, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. And everybody does. Yeah. yeah. But we love the diversity that it gives us. You know, we feel like we're making a mark on the profession because we have people coming from all over the country and from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, mm -hmm. people who were, 
social workers and marketing experts. And we had somebody who worked for Epic and, you know, so it's, it's really a nice mix. And, you know, we had a case conference kind of thing recently and, um, a student was talking about a patient who was considering terminating a pregnancy and someone said, so, you know, she'll just do that. And she said, you don't understand. We live in Texas. That's all changing. This was the end of August. She said, this is changing September 1st. And then another student piped up, well, here in Oklahoma, here's what, what we do. And it was the richest conversation because we had people from all over who could speak yeah. to how things are done in different places. It was really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Janice, I have a question. Um, with the diversity of the ability to have all that flexibility, have you seen any difference in the type of applicants you get? You mentioned older, but, um, you know, I just wonder, given that our profession is 90% white females, um, is there any kind of a, a greater opportunity there for us to have greater diversity? I think so. I mean, judging by our last applicant pool, I would say yes. And our, the class that's just matriculating now is, I calculated this, 22% non-white slash non-female, which I thought was pretty good compared to the roughly 10% that the profession is as a whole. Mm-hmm. I have yeah. the same question with regards for, you know, potentially international students, you know, somebody who wants to zoom in from the UK or Germany or something like that. Would that be possible? Uh, well, theoretically, I mean, that sounds <clears throat> the wonderful. rotations would be different, and but. Not just that. Bay Path University does not allow for international students, at least not oh. on the graduate level. And I, and I don't know why. And I've asked that question and, you know, it's a, it's a drum I've been beating um, because I feel like it would really enhance our profile and enhance our diversity and so forth. The time change, though, can be very tricky. So we have a brand new student who's in Hawaii. So we're on mm. Eastern time and she's on, I don't even know what you call that, <laughs> Pacific <laughs> Island time or something. Yeah. Um, so she's six hours behind us. And when we interviewed her, we said, you know, we would love to have you. However, you know, when we do synchronous lectures or activities. It's not a lot of them, but when we do them, we do them roughly, we start between 7 and 8 p.m. Eastern time so that we don't go too late for the East Coasters, but we don't start too early for the West Coasters so that they can't, you know, they're still in clinic or they're still at work, you know, so it's, we try to strike that balance. But for somebody who's in Hawaii, where it's, you know, 1.30 in the afternoon, that's a little bit tricky. And she said that would be okay for her. And she's actually moving to Connecticut within the next year anyway. So she wasn't too worried about it. But the time change, you know, if somebody's in, I don't know, Bucharest or something, <laughs> could be could be a real issue. But it's a non-issue, unfortunately, for us because we're not allowed to do it. Not yet, anyway. Yeah. No, this is uh, a really interesting. Um, that you know, the the capstone. You you had mentioned that a few times, and that that's new to me. I actually I thought um, most genetic counseling programs just did a, a research project. Is that also part of it, or is that more? Key? I, well, I, I think it varies from program to program, but there is now an ACGC requirement for some kind of research project. And what that looks like, I think, is largely up to the programs. But I think more than not, everybody's going to capstones these days. Mm-hmm. Very unofficially, that's kind of my, oh, interesting. my thought yeah. on that. And yeah. capstone, I mean, in, forgive my ignorance, but capstone, because <laughs> I, I always think of it more in the MBA type world and everything. So uh, I guess there's a, a research format to it as well. Okay. Yeah, a lot of them, not all certainly, but a lot of them are survey based kinds of things. 
you know, so whether they're surveying genetic counselors or PA students, or uh, I don't know, uh, patients who go to an IVF clinic, you know, whatever their research question might be. Um, a lot of them are surveys, but not all of them. We had a student last year who did a project on how genetic disorders are portrayed in the media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it was. She, she was called the midwife as her main uh, focus. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. It was great. So yeah, what makes good. it a capstone versus a thesis? What's, what? I, okay. um, you know, I'd have to look up the definition of capstone. I don't know. Yeah. I I think it's more in my mind and maybe I'm wrong. You know, I think of a thesis, I mean, not a PhD level thesis, but in general, I think of them as more like a research paper of, you know, you're, you're compiling research from other places and, and telling a story about it, or, you know, coming to some conclusion about it versus creating something original, you know, doing an original project Mm. that produces data. That's, that's my very loose understanding. Yeah. When, when um, COVID hit, uh, uh, we didn't get into it, but I don't know if you were in the position already, but I'm assuming if you were, people were knocking on your door trying to figure out how to, <laughs> how to structure <laughs> yeah. a virtual program because almost yeah. all the programs did go to virtual, right? At least That's right. Now. And yeah. exactly right. So in the summer of 2020, I worked with some people from Boise State to put on a webinar during the program directors conference on exactly that, on what mm-hmm. is it to teach virtually with intentionality, not, not by default because you had to because it was a pandemic. Um, and I have every expectation that the other programs that did it very suddenly and abruptly did a fine job with it, but it is different when you design it that way to begin with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would yeah. And we did an educational breakout session as well at uh, NSGC two years ago on the same kind of topic. I mean, we were all newer to it then than we are now, but still, yeah, there were a lot of naysayers at the time, hopefully not as many now. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, very different. Are the brick and mortar programs now getting back up to speed on campuses? I don't even know. I, I mean, I'm sure it varies so. from state to state. I'm sure it does. Yeah, I, I don't actually know, but I would think so. I mean, obviously that was the goal yeah. with whatever protections in place. So any, any questions on uh, uh, the program uh, that we're talking about by Jan- from Janice? If not, I, I had a question I want to move into on, um, you know, what do you think the, you know, just more broadly as a, as a program director, you know, trying to mold minds. I mean, what do you think are the, you know, opportunities or, or deficits that you're seeing in genetic counseling training right now? Mm. I think one of the problems that we have is true for medicine, certainly, and probably a lot of other fields where things keep expanding. We have so much more knowledge than we used to in so many more different branches to go down. You know, when when I graduated from school, you could be a prenatal genetic counselor, you could be a pediatric genetic counselor. And if you were really lucky, you could do both. But that's all there was. Right. And now you obviously you can do oncology, cardiology, neurology, psychiatry. Um, There's a million different things you can do. And we haven't changed the length of our training programs. We haven't made them bigger, broader, longer. So where do you fit all of that in and what do you shortchange as you're doing it? So we found that where we were 
shortchanging, not intentionally, of course, was in our psychosocial content. And so we're working hard Mm -hmm. on adjusting that. But, you know, in a way, something has to give. So what do you give less time to? And not only that, there are more technologies. You know, there's so many more things that you can do. I mean, when we learned about it, what did we learn? Amniocentesis and Coriana Villa sampling. Well, now there's cell-free DNA and, and and IPT and IVF with PGD and like a million other things yeah. that we didn't have to learn about because it didn't exist, which was definitely worse for patients. But, you know, when you don't change the timing of your program, how do you fit all, all in? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing, I, you know, I, I uh, thought about a lot is, um, you know, the tumor side of cancer, um, you know, kind of who owns it? I mean, you know, it seems like uh, it just naturally was uh, taken quickly into the arms of uh, medical oncologists, uh, just because, you know, they're seeing the patients, they saw the immediate therapeutic benefit and link. And now, you know, it it seems like there's a, a, a sorting of, you know, how to handle this across the United States, at least, I can't really speak internationally, for from a genetic counselor standpoint, where, um, you know, uh, they're trying to find their place in this whole thing. I just wonder if you had any thoughts, thoughts there. You know, I can only go by the, the experience that I have. So the job that I had prior to being at Baypath was as a clinical genetic counselor in the oncology service at Memorial Sloan Kettering with Mark Robson, who you mentioned mm-hmm. before. And the way we did it was, you know, the, the tumor testing that was done for pathology reasons had a whole system in place where if there was a mutation identified that was thought could be hereditary, then the person was referred to the clinical genetic service. And it was fairly standard and routine and um, worked well, but that's at a really, you know, well-oiled machine of Sloan Kettering and, um, you know, how it works in your average community hospital. I don't know, but I can see what you were saying. Yeah, and that's still for the hereditary side, it sounds. I'm, I'm also thinking about, yeah, you know, the comfort level just on the tumor side in general. And, and yeah. there's discussion on the program director level. Like, I, I don't know, you must go to secret program director meetings or something like that. <laughs> Not so secret, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, does this ever come up like of, of the training? Is there a desire to get more into the somatic side of things or is it, you know, I, the, you know, there's a lecture here and there in our program yeah. and everybody else's, but I don't know yeah. that it's a specific push to get into that. I think there's, you know, if you're looking for new avenues to go down newer, um, I think more the personalized medicine pharmacogenomics route is, mm-hmm. is where counselors are going to start going. I mean, some have, but I think it'll get bigger and bigger as time goes by. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested yeah. from Robin, from Shelly, if you think that's true. Yeah, I think it's true, but I think they come come together because you're going to have to have the somatic testing to decide which chemotherapy to give or which anesthesia not to give, um, you know, and so I feel like at some point there's going to be this crossroads where the training programs are to sit back and evaluate, um, are we going to focus just on the hereditary germline or are we going to pull in the which is a whole huge population of of areas that you can go into, um, which I think would be a huge undertaking for the training programs because of the tight timeline of length of the training programs, but the depth and breadth during that timeline. 
Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It would not shock me if in the next, I don't know, five to 10 years, some programs went to three years. I mean, the problem with that, among others, is cost, right? That's a heck of a lot more tuition money for students who at the back end of it may not be expecting to be, you know, six figure wage earners. So, although that's changing too, you know, our salaries have gone up over the years too, fairly considerably. So I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot will maybe depend on the, uh, the legislation for Medicare coverage and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, A lot of different things tied together. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, you, you probably have some unique insights, all that Um, the, you know, the coverage and billing and everything. I mean, where, where do you see that uh, going? I mean, if you had a crystal ball over the next (laughs) five, 10 years, do you think, uh, you know, this will become pretty routine, you know, billing independently? I hope so. I, you know, to some extent, it depends on who's in office, right? Because, you know, how much do we value medical care? And in particular, the, you know, health-related professions that are not medicine-specific um, or, or MD proper, so to speak. Um, I, I don't know where that's going to go. It, it will be very interesting to see. And I mean, if anybody who's listening is thinking about this or has insight into it, I'd be very interested to hear some comments. It's, you know, been so up in the air for such a long time, and it feels like nothing ever makes any progress, you know. Congress convenes and then it adjourns and we start all over again with the bill the next in the next Congress. So are there any states right now that um, um, people are billing completely autonomously? I don't know. I don't know. You know, without the Medicare stamp of approval, it's Mm. a lot harder. You know, insurance companies, not all, but most tend to follow what Medicare does. Mm. So if Medicare hasn't given it the federal stamp I'm not sure any states would really have anything to do with it. I mean, maybe they're yeah. private insurance companies. I don't know. I mean, I, they I've can been... bill, they can bill, but it's a yeah. cash fee for right. service. Yeah. I, I've been surprised, um, you know, because I uh, do a lot with the city of hope course um, and remain on guest faculty for that. And over the years, I, I've seen a few, you know, graduates go, um, you know, but now that I think about it, they're really all nurse practitioners um, that I can think of. And they started their own literal independent shop to do genetic Mm -hmm. counseling, um, Mm -hmm. which is uh, very interesting. There are some genetic counselors who do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I I don't entirely know how they do it. It probably is a fee for service kind of thing. I don't know how else really they could do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Janice, with the complexity of where um, genomics genetics is going, do you see any of the programs um, having specialty tracks? So if a student to go into yeah. just cancer or just metabolic, yeah. so then they would I've, take a test that's just on that versus right. all. I you know, I've, I've thought about that. And I, it, part of me really likes the idea, but it all ties back to accreditation. So right now, the way ACGC has set everything up, we couldn't do it because by definition almost, we need to graduate generalists, people who are competent in every area. So when you come into a training program, you are required to do rotations in prenatal pediatrics and cancer. If you want to add other things in and you have the time, you can do that, but those big three have to be done. And you have to be able to show that you've had participatory cases in each of those things in order to be eligible to sit for boards. So it's kind of a it's a two-pronged thing. It's certification and it's accreditation from that standpoint. It doesn't mean it couldn't change though. 
And, you know, there was talk, you might remember, it was, my God, it was probably 25 years ago, there was talk about creating a specialty exam in cancer genetic counseling. Mm -hmm. And it kind of died on the vine, but that was a long time ago. And there were many, many fewer of us who had done cancer genetics at the time. So I could see that happening, but to my knowledge and going to these, you know, secret program director meetings, um, (laughs) I haven't heard rumblings about that yet. But I could I could see it going yeah. that way. Yeah, I mean, some of these are just so um, you know that the knowledge level is so nuanced. I mean, you know, I think of uh, in 2014 when I went to City Hope and took the, I just audited the course uh, my first year there, and you know, I came from Case Western Reserve, was trained by Georgia Wiesner, had you know, fantastic. We had a really robust you know cancer genetics program going. I had it interest as a MD clinical geneticist in cancer genetics at the time. And when I still with all that, you know, I did great on my boards, all that. And then, you know, but still when I went to city of hope, I felt like I learned like 60% of the material that was taught in the 109 hour CME (laughs) course (laughs) at the time, which was probably only expanded a few hours at this point. Um, I mean, was, was new to me. I really, you know, even as an MD, you know, a lot of just, uh, you know, thinking about cancer and staging a lot of, you know, it was, it was really eye opening. So, um, but yeah, I mean, is that above and beyond maybe what an average, you know, like a generalist would need, you know, I don't know. Well, I, you know, there are a lot of programs now. So if some of them remained generalized programs and some of them specialized, you know, that could potentially work too. Mm -hmm. I don't hate the idea at all. Yeah. I have a question for you. Um, Back when I was in clinic, I I live in an area that has a program um, locally. I actually graduated from that program, but most of the rotation stayed within the academic centers, even though there was a wealth of genetic counselors within the community Mm. who would love to be involved with students and, and supervise students. I actually never had the opportunity to supervise students until I had programs like yours or, or programs that um, contacted me because somebody wanted to do like a summer rotation away. Mm. Um, and that was the first chance I had ever had to supervise. So I guess my real question is, um, do you do any proactive outreach to the GC community to assess interest on, on people who really would like to supervise but don't have any other opportunity kind of to build that network of people? Yeah. Um, cause I think that's a big problem within our profession is we have the people and resources to help train, but we don't always, we don't always have access to the students either. Right. That's a great question. And given now, since the pandemic hit that a lot of rotations are actually done by telehealth that would lend itself even more to it. Um, and to be honest, you know, we have had a field work uh, coordinator who just left us on Friday and we're, we're in the process of hiring somebody new, but she was so good at her job that I really didn't honestly have to pay a lot of attention. So, you know, how much outreach she was doing on a general level, I don't think a lot, um, but probably some. And I will tell you that when the pandemic first hit and we had second year students who were about to graduate and needed to finish their clinical rotations. I mean, we and every other program, there was a mass scramble. What do we do? Because so many clinics were actually just closing down and they weren't seeing patients by telehealth or any other means. And so we 
worked with other programs to create um, standardized patients and you know simulated cases and so forth. So we have that. And um, you know, like you said, we reach out to programs or to clinical sites when we have students in that area. But I do like what you're saying about doing more of a generalized outreach so that somebody who's in an area may be where there isn't a program and that person isn't able to supervise, but would be willing to do so by telehealth. That could be very interesting. I like that idea. It could where be something as simply as putting something on ABGC and letting the membership know to go in there and say, hey, if you're interested ever in supervising a student. Right. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Brianna, where are you located? Now I'm located at Myriad, um, but oh, okay. back in my clinic days, I live in Boulder, Colorado. So, ah, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I was going to say I'll send patients your way, but. <laughs> well, we do. Myriad does have student rotations, so don't yeah, forget exactly. Exactly about oh, those laboratory we, opportunities. We have not forgotten, believe me. <laughs> Well, that brings up a yeah, good point. Thanks, Bria. I mean, about industry relations and everything with counseling training programs. I mean, yeah. um, you know, this is Myriad Oncology Lab, which probably, uh, you know, talk about a little bit. I mean, what, what do you see going on at the program director level? Because, you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe you know, but I would think, you know, at least, I don't know, 15, 20% of uh, all counselors probably work for companies at this point. Something too. like that. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a laboratory component built in now to our um, practice based competencies. So there, every student has to do a little something. It would probably be better if it was more of a something. But again, there's those time constraints. We do encourage our students to do some lab based rotation. They can't be as long as the other ones because we have to make sure that they have the participatory cases that they need for their logbooks. And what they do in the lab doesn't generally count for that. But that doesn't mean it isn't highly valuable. And we have a whole system of tracking their non-logbook cases. Um, so we take advantage of Myriad and many, many others. <laughs> oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah, I'll stop here for questions. I've been asking a lot. So I wanted to, can we switch gears just a little bit? Um, so I know Janice, you um, have been involved with a lot of writing and you were the executive editor um, for years, newsletter for NSGC. And now you have not one, but two novels um, under your belt. So um, I want to hear a little bit more about how you um, got interested in um, a lot bigger writing than just for a newsletter. Um, yeah. Particularly, you know, this is a big book. Oh, look at you. Thank oh. you. Um, with an autograph uh, by the author. Um, so we want to hear a little bit about that and um, where your ideas come from. Yeah. Um, and um, like, what's your next plan? Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate your asking that. So I, I cannot admit to any longstanding goal of I always wanted to be a writer. It really didn't happen that way. It was really rather sudden. Um, I was, I've told this story 500 times. I was um, in Cancun, lying on a beach with my husband, reading a book, and we got up to take a walk, and it just kind of hit me. I just, like, it came flying out of my mouth. I think I want to write a book. You know, I was 
I was reading something by Jody Papolt, who writing I love, um, and you know I I was a hundred percent sure my husband was going to say, yeah, "On all your spare time, you're going to write a book." Ha ha, and dismiss it. He didn't. He said, "So write a book." And for the next hour, we were walking on the beach. We were talking about different topics and what I could think about writing. And it just kind of happened. And then once I wrote an outline, the book wrote itself. Honest to God, it flew out of my fingers. It was the weirdest thing. Um, so I can't even really tell you where the idea for that one came from. I, I can tell you that the sort of global motivation is to make genetics and genetic counseling accessible to the average person. So in the same way that Lisa Genova, who wrote Still Alice and Inside the O'Briens and a number of others has made neurologic disorders so easy to understand for the average reader, that's what I was setting out to do for genetics. Um, so the first book is about um, a little girl with a metabolic disorder. And in trying to figure out where this disorder came from, we end up seeing a whole lot of things about the family, a lot of family secrets and drama and trauma and um, things that were uncovered that the family might never would have wished they had never known about probably. Um, the second novel, which is called In Good Conscience, has Lynch syndrome as its theme, really. I mean, from a genetic standpoint, that's its theme. To me, the theme more is the conflict between confidentiality and duty to warn. That's how I set it up. And my sister, who's my biggest fan and reads every chapter as I write it, said, see, I thought it was, you know, poor actor dude got cancer. <laughs> it's, it is that. <laughs> but I was going for the overarching more ethical theme but anyway yeah and these um yeah it, it looks like the, the first one is it called brooks promise i see it on your wall behind you it looked like the same oh cover right that, that was a Shelley. poster that my sister made for a surprise party she made so i don't know how well you can see it but it says uh is that the name of the book congratulations jen we're all so proud of you <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that is the name of the book book brooks that is the promise. name of the book oh okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, that's exciting. And uh, I mean, who, who's your audience? Like when you, when you are writing this, is it just the general, you know, lay public trying to kind of educate them up on, you know, yeah. a good story with some genetics overlay? It is. And, you know, I'm hoping that I have a genetic counselor audience too, who will read it and say, I hope, yeah, she captured that pretty well. Um, if I didn't, don't tell me. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I want to know. But um I think it's it's good for most anyone. I mean, you know, my son read both of them. And he's like, you know, of course, this is not a book I would ever read if you weren't the one who wrote it. I mean, it's well written, but it's not my thing. Yeah. And so there probably are, you know, the, the people who read Tom Clancy and Ken Follett and so forth are not the people reading my book, probably, unless they're related to me and they're forced into it. Yeah. <laughs> did you did you work with an editor like pitch it and everything or did you just the, the first time for Brooks Promise I did and um, I loved this woman she was absolutely wonderful and in between the writing of Brooks Promise and In Good Conscience she had the nerve to pass away so yeah. that was sad um, so I thought about using an editor for the second one and then I decided with all the people around me who were being my beta readers and the the high level of spelling grammar and syntax <laughs> that they have I was going to kind of risk it and hope that it's okay mm -hmm. we'll see if you find <laughs> lots of things wrong let me know and I'll that's fix exciting <laughs> well and uh Shelly put uh looks like so both of them are available um yeah Shelly put the Thanks, Amazon Shel. links <laughs>
<laughs> for those interested. Um, oh, good. I, um, any questions? I had one um, on psychosomatic, uh, which, or not psychosomatic, psychosocial, sorry. <laughs> uh, switch gears in my doctor brain. But um, so for, for psychosocial, um, that, that's always been something of interest to me. I mean, just in the training program in general, because, you know, at least for my, here's, here's uh, you know, TJ's view of psychosocial and genetic counseling in general. Um, you know, A, I have no idea how much is in the training programs. It seems like it's a, some type of component, but I, I really have no experience with it. B, I've worked with many counselors over the years, and I've seen everything from counselors that are like completely 100% embrace it and want to go back in a room and, you know, have like a full-on psychosocial session with someone to the absolute flip side, which is actually in my mind uh, of the counselors I've worked with over the years, almost the more the majority, which are, are, you know, they almost like don't want to have much to do with it or, you know, just kind of like see issues, but are like more in the mindset of like, let's just do this, you know, genetic testing visit. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the goal here is to figure out testing, you know, uh, and educate on that. And then if there's a massive psychosocial issue looming, you know, I'm going to identify it enough to at least, you know, try to recommend there's other, you know, avenues or something like that, that I would, you know, um, send that person to. And I just wanted your, your opinion on, you know, what, what the programs are at, are all programs kind of level set in this regard or some really the, known well, for like psychosocial strengths? There are the definitely. Okay. So, um, I can say, you know, even back when I was in school, the Sarah Lawrence program, the Berkeley program, sure. There were others were very, well-known to be far more psychosocially oriented than others. I went to the University of Michigan um, back when the earth was cooling and there were no um, guidelines, really. I mean, there was no ACGC, there was no core competency. There was like, there was nothing. And the program was 100% molecular. There was no psychosocial training really at all. I mean, what you might witness in clinic, but nothing formal, we didn't learn any of the theories of, of anything. Um, and so, you know, I came out of school thinking well, my job is to educate people and help them come to decisions that feel comfortable to them. And if that involves a little bit of a psychosocial component, okay, but it wasn't really my goal. And then I started meeting counselors over the years who almost seemed like they were trying to pull a scab off and pluck out whatever psychosocial issues they could from their patients and I'm not entirely sure what the motivation was for that. Um, I mean, I think it's wonderful to address it if it's there, but I don't know that creating it or uncorking it is necessarily the best way to go. But it does feel like over the years, and any genetic counselors on the call can chime in too, it feels to me like it's become more of an issue, issues around more, more of a focus over the last, I don't know, 10 years or so that, that people, genetic counselors are starting to think the content is important, but the average patient does not care about the difference between DNA, genes, and chromosomes. Let's focus less on that and more on what is the patient going to do with the information or how did the person even get here in the first place? What are the motivations for testing maybe? And of course, not every patient is gonna have testing. Not every patient even comes in for the purpose of talking about testing. So there's a lot that goes into it. And I've 
I personally, I mean, obviously I can only speak for myself. I've embraced the psychosocial more and more over the years as I become more comfortable with it. But one of the other problems I think is that there isn't necessarily a lot of training mm-hmm. in how to handle somebody who falls apart in hysteria when she finds out X about her baby, her diagnosis, her whatever. Um, and so I think for a lot of us, you know, you're, you're afraid to bring it out because you don't know what you're going to do with it once it's there. You know, it's kind of like the prenatal counselor who doesn't ask about the cancer in the family because she knows she's not going to be able to counsel on the, the cancer history once she hears about it, or at least not, doesn't feel as competent about it. Um, and I think that's, you know, we see surveys sometimes people ask about gender dysphoria and other kinds of issues in families. And like, well, I don't really know what I would say if they said yes to any of it. So I just won't ask. And I don't know that that's even conscious, but um, I think as we become more comfortable with the psychosocial, we learn more about it, we'll utilize it more. What, what is the training that uh, like the counselors in your program go through specifically for psychosocial? We have, well, we're just in the process of changing that. So we are revamping three courses into two, not because we feel we need less content, but we feel like we can make better use of those credits and and shift things around. And we're going to make it more case-based. We're going to add more board style questions into the course so that people start thinking about the way those things are asked. Um, Because we found that that was a weak spot in our program. And we didn't have a designated person who felt like, okay, this is my strong suit. I'm going to do this. So, um, you know, we had enough feedback from students and clinical supervisors like, okay, this is our number one issue that we have to deal with. Mm. So, you know, ask me again in a year or two, um, you know, I'll be really happy to tell you what we're doing and how well it's working. But, um, and what are you seeing around the country? I mean, for other programs, are a lot of the, uh, the psychosocial aspects taught by, genetic counselor, you know, um, faculty, or is it uh, psychologists? I mean, you know. It's probably a combination. There are a tremendous number of genetic counselors who do this really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, if I could channel them and teach those courses, that would be great. Um, But I I think for some of us, it's a a weakness. Yeah. because yeah. it, it is very different. I mean, like you said, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting that the same person, you know, you could, you could have the same patient and they go to, you know, genetic counselor one versus genetic counselor two, and they can have a very different experience. I mean, one yes. can be very molecular focused, educational, you know, focused on testing outcomes, what you're going to do management. And then the other could be very psychosocial. And, you yeah. know, you could argue that those are, you know, almost more than a lot of other professions where you, you have the ability to really swing swing a visit. I think that comes into like billing and coding and (laughs) all that. Yeah. But I think that the converse is also true. So, you know, if the same patient came into a session with the same counselor and, you know, in in essence did the same session twice, but the first time really kind of stuck to the facts and the second time really expressed whatever difficulties dealing with whatever, then the counselor might react very differently too. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know. I, that's why no two sessions are alike. And that's part of what I think we all love about it. Yeah, yeah. And sorry, what were you saying, Rob? I was just going to say, I think, you know, part of it is the, the genetic counseling program. Like, you know, you know that if you go to the University of Pittsburgh, it's going to be more science focused. Uh, but also it's what genetic counseling students bring into the program. So mm-hmm. before I was a genetic counseling student, I was a um, uh 
suicide hotline counselor for two years. So I came into it with a lot of sort of that basic counseling already. And so I, I sort of latched onto that because it was what was interesting, interesting to me, um, mm-hmm. whereas some people just don't have that background or don't have that interest. Yeah, that's true. And I think now that, I mean, it's always been competitive, but program admission has gotten so much more competitive that I think applicants all know they need to have some experience in a suicide hotline, a rape crisis hotline, a a women's shelter, you know, something. So they do come into it knowing more about those kinds of things than they used to on average. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm. competitiveness i mean that's you know how so that is it the programs are getting more and more competitive i mean are there outside of u.s training programs are there other avenues that you're seeing u.s applicants go to if they really want to do this but can't get into a program or you know there are some international programs whether Mm -hmm. u.s students are going there i really don't know but um yeah it's just I, i guess that's why we keep having more programs being developed across the country. Mm. I mean, like I said, there were 10 when I applied and now there's 55. So yeah, yeah. that does include Canada, but there's so 51 in the US and four in Canada. Yeah, that's, that's a good amount. Yeah. Well, good, anything else? Any other questions? We're, we're pretty much running into time. Yeah. I really, really appreciate you coming on Janice. Oh, um, thanks. It was a pleasure. It was so much fun. Shelly making the connection. This was fantastic. And yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, for, for those that couldn't listen today, you know, at some point it'll be up on <laughs> the, the podcast feed. Um, we just put the audio on, so, you know, feel oh. free to, um, you know, if you want to even have anybody else listen to it or anything like that, uh, oh, great. You okay. Can, you can share it around there too. Yeah. Um, well, good. Well, so next week, or you know, in two weeks, we're going to come back uh, again with Dr. Cohen. Um, so he will be on, and we'll talk about uh, prostate cancer. That will be not so much uh, psychosocial; it will be more <laughs> uh, heavy molecular, I would think. Yeah, <laughs> neurology yeah. topic, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's good. So, well, great. Well, I appreciate everyone coming on, and thank you again, a thousand times, Janice, and thanks for everybody. <laughs> thank else you for having me. I really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, this is very fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. All right. Bye.